morning, everyone. Thank you all very much for joining us. Um, and apologies to those of you who are having to stand at the back. There are, I can see at least one seat down here in the front, maybe the odd one scattered around if you'd like to uh, take a seat or you can stay where you are. Um, welcome to this event to discuss how can Labour deliver zero carbon energy generation by 2030. My name is Gemma Tetlow, I'm Chief Economist at the Institute for Government and we're delighted to be holding today's event in partnership with Energy UK. The Labour Party has an ambitious agenda to make the UK a green energy superpower, and part of that is the pledge to get to zero carbon energy generation by 2030. So that's the topic for our discussion today. Doing that is going to need a huge effort from central government, regulators, local government, industry working together to make that realistic. Um, so I'm delighted we have four fantastic panelists here today to help us talk about those questions. Um, on my far right, we have Emma Pinchbeck, who is CEO of Energy UK. We also have Dr. Alan Whitehead, MP, who is Shadow Minister for Clean Energy and has been MP for Southampton Test since 1997. On my left, I have my colleague, uh, Jill Rutter, who is a senior fellow at the Institute for Government. And on my far left, we have Keith Anderson, uh, who is chief executive of Scottish Power. Um, apologies in advance that Keith is going to have to rush off a bit early uh, last minute meeting with Rachel Reeves. So I understand he can't say no to that, um, but hopefully we can get his thoughts um, in the next half hour or so and from all of the panelists in the next hour. Um, we're going to be live tweeting today's event using the account at IFG events and the hashtags hashtag IFG lab 23 and hashtag lab 23. So please do follow and tweet along uh, if that's your thing. But without further ado, um, let me hand over to Emma. Um, so how do we get to zero carbon energy generation and what does it industry most need from government to make that realistic? Just going to check this works. Oh, it does work. I can't decide who stitched me up with this event title or whether it was you or whether it was my own team. <laughs> ah, the question everyone wants the answer to. Um, I thought I'd do that non-politicians, politicians trick of just setting some context because I don't make the fatal assumption that everyone in this room is an energy nerd, though most of you are. Um, the good news about the particular moment that the Labour government would find itself in is that it's absolutely clear as far as the energy sector is concerned that the energy transition is the way that we get energy security, is the way that we bring bills down, is the thing that we want to do. And the second thing that's quite good for the energy sector with an incoming Labour government is it's absolutely clear it has to be done in partnership. We need £50 billion a year to deliver net zero. A lot of that money will have to come from the private sector and we are happy and confident and willing to invest in just the people in my membership have got 100 billion in our forward pipelines waiting to come into the UK. So a lot of this is working out what government does and what industry does, but the confidence in the sector that this is just the future of energy is very clear now. Similarly, good news. I think coming out of the energy crisis, there's a real understanding that you have to invest in clean technologies for national security reasons. And when I look globally now, a lot of the moves are about trying to get away from volatile fossil markets to understand that fossil fuels are often in countries which are not necessarily friendly to UK interests. To have an eye on China, on the US and other really big economies as they now move into the energy transition to ask ourselves the question about what the UK wants to do. So it's a exciting opportunity, but also a chance to reposition ourselves on the global stage. And all of that will be very live for Labour should they win the next election. The bad news though, and what makes any target challenging, because the US has got the Inflation Reduction Act, because China has got the second, first bit, the biggest wind farm 
biggest wind market in the world that's happened in the time I've been off having babies, by the way. It's happened very fast, and sometimes I get the stat wrong. Um, it's, so, it's been such a quick, rapid transition for other countries to now be catching up to UK leadership that there is massive competition for capital. And just to do my hackneyed anecdote, sorry for everyone who's heard this before, but I was at a round table with the CEO of JP Morgan recently and Johnny Reynolds, and he said that the Inflation Reduction Act in the US has caused the biggest shift in capital markets that he's seen in his entire career. That's bigger than the 2008 financial crash, bigger than a global pandemic. So there is huge, huge competition for that money that we need to do the transition. Second area of concern is that we, the current government has not moved to shore up the industry in response to that competition. And we've just had one, arguably two auction rounds in the UK that have failed to deliver the offshore wind that we need. And we know that on current trajectory, we won't meet our targets for 2035, let alone 2030. For Labour, this will mean having to front load more investment on top of what they were already planning to do. We need twice the capacity to come through the next two auction rounds as we've ever had through any auction ever in the UK, just to give you a sense of scale. So that's additional problems we didn't have necessarily two years ago. We've got to do seven times the amount of infrastructure in the next 10, in the next 10 years that we've done in the previous 10 years. A lot of that is grid. I don't know if any of you are MPs, but I don't know how pylons go down with your constituents, but we're going to be doing a lot of building stuff and we're going to need a political consensus that national interest sometimes will trump local interests. Equally, we need to find a way to balance the environment, social needs and national interest. That's going to be on Labour's desk. We do absolutely need to tackle the grid. It takes 13 years to connect up a wind farm. It should take us less than a year in theory. And every single one of those projects will need a grid connection, every battery factory, every new housing estate, Alan, if you're doing housing too. So there's massive need to sort out grid. And yes, planning also because of the, the amount of stuff we're going to build. And, and I suppose my pitch to you is like, bold politics is being willing to say you're going to do planning reform. That for me is, is pretty exciting messaging because it does mean that the national interest and, and the energy transition has to be kind of foremost in the government's mind. They're going to have to have some fights. So that's what it will look like. What that means for a Labour government that wants to deliver 2030 or, or frankly anything in the energy sector is day one in government, they need to know what their energy bill looks like. And it's very welcome that Ed is starting to kind of lay out the detail on, um, on a bill this afternoon. It's welcome that we've got a shadow chancellor talking about grid and planning as a priority issue for the economy. And we need to get legislation done in the first 100 days of a Labour government at question to even have a shot at getting stuff delivered over the next five years. Just two areas where I haven't heard Labour speak and, and which will be really important. One is the gas transition. I hear a lot about renewables, you know, the quadrupling of wind, for example, from Ed and the Shadow Energy team, I hear much less about how we're planning to transition the gas fleet or how we're going to do the 25% of the mix we think will not be renewables. So that's nuclear gas, storage, other things. That needs much more attention. It will have to be that mix of planned transition and markets. And I don't know what that looks like right now. And that worries me, frankly, more than renewables. Um, Relatedly, all of this has a cost, massive benefits eventually, but a cost, and especially if you're front-loading investment up front. We have energy retailers in Energy UK. We are responsible for people's bills. So we've got to do massive infrastructure build and fund it appropriately, and that means asking questions about fairness, who pays and when, and what does it mean for bills, or is this taxation, or what and where and how. And then I think, relatedly, we've had a thoughtful approach in energy efficiency and scaling up buildings, but I haven't heard much about heat and gas demand reduction for heat. And these things are important because the energy demand side, as we call it, is the other end of the system. 
So it's very important we understand what's happening in houses, what's happening with consumer technology, what we're doing to reduce gas in that bit of the economy, because that has a direct relationship with how much capacity we need to build upstream and how we manage the system. So I'd love to hear, maybe this is not retail politics, but if we're doing planning reform, could we also do geeky flexibility markets? And that is now my hill to die on. And the day the shadow chancellor starts talking about demand side response, I, I can probably retire. So there's some, there's some really good stuff. Just, I suppose last year I spent a lot of my time kicking government and kicking politicians for not welcoming, embracing, realizing that without a solid energy sector, you do not have economic productivity. There has been no economic growth in history, no functioning economy without clean, modern infrastructure, without investing in infrastructure, without cheap energy. And the energy transition for the energy se sector is that opportunity for the UK economy. Given that I spend so much time having a go at the messages, I think it's really welcome to have ambition. And the language we've started using in the sector is lodestar. And when I talk to ministers about this, they often make the comparison with child poverty targets under the last Labour government. We might not hit it, or we might, but you do ultimately have to have something to aim for and a massive great big signal for our investors. So as that comes with a plan, we're up for seeing how fast we can go. Fantastic, thank you very much, Emma. Alan, for you, what do you see as being the key challenges for a future Labour government in achieving this clean energy transition? And I guess particularly what do you see as the role of GB Energy within this to help deliver the sort of changes that Emma was talking about? Yeah, I was going to say in terms of challenges, how long have you got? Um, uh, and I was also going to say, uh, by the way, you know, Emma has nicked most of my lines this morning. Um, so we, we got off to a good start in that um, respect. I mean, the, the, the challenge uh, we have set ourselves, which is to get to a uh, wholly uh, renewable, low-carbon uh, power system by 2030, which, of course, is not a heat system, and we've got to uh, remember that very centrally in terms of our overall uh, planning, uh, is one that I think is... Uh, in principle, eminently uh, achievable, uh, providing we can actually get the uh, investment, as Emma said, up front, uh, that we unlock a lot of the processes which um, are a drag on that investment coming in and are a drag on getting those uh, schemes uh, thought about, invested in, permitted, planned, developed, uh, at the speed at which we need uh, to get these things in place. And uh, so uh, we have, uh, you know, in principle, uh, a, for example, five-fold increase in, in uh, offshore wind. Big challenges in that, as Emma has just mentioned. Uh, most recently, the government's complete screw-up of uh, AR5 and uh, the, the, the resulting loading uh, of that uh, that output trajectory onto later rounds, and we've obviously got to do some work in making sure those rounds not not only work, but are probably conceived in quite a different way than has happened uh, so far with rounds. Uh, Travelling uh, solar uh, 
and particularly uh, large-scale uh, field solar. Uh, that has its own challenges, obviously, in terms of planning and um, uh, installation, and uh, doubling uh, onshore wind uh, so that we get uh, the capacity in place right across the board. Now, obviously, big challenge in onshore wind is that the government has banned it for the last uh, uh, number of years. And, and although it is saying it, is, it has released the ban, that isn't really the case. Uh, so we're starting from ground zero as far as uh, onshore is concerned. And that actually then leads me to one of the things Eddie is going to talk about this afternoon, which is the energy independence bill that we're hoping to get through very, very early in a new Labour government. One thing we're clear about is we've actually got to do an enormous amount of ground clearing uh, to get the legislative framework in place that these things can happen at the speed that we want them to happen. And that's going to be part of the what's in the energy independence bill. Now, biggest challenge of all is the fact that uh, the grid is just not capable at the moment of delivering uh, the sort of uh, things we want to put in place. And I mean, we've heard uh, regularly of you know, connections uh, for investors uh, coming out at 2035, 2036. Uh, so we, we may well be in a position, if we are not very, very careful, uh, of having a uh, lots and lots of renewables. I mean, looking at the last quarter, we actually uh, produced a majority uh, of our power from uh, renewables. And if you add uh, nuclear to that, then something like 70% of our power uh, came from renewable or low carbon sources in the first quarter of 2023. So the target is not as unachievable uh, as you think it is in terms of what there is already. The problem is that we just don't have the planning and investment in getting to the next stage. And uh, frankly, I mean, I'm saying in a meeting this morning, um, if we have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in a few years' time, just the utter dereliction of any sort of serious and coherent planning to make the system work by the government over the last few years uh, is absolutely quite horrifying to to contemplate. So we've got an enormous amount of work to put the put that planning back into a coherent way so these things work together uh, to come into uh, the energy systems for the future. Now, grid, we've just got to build a huge amount of grid, both onshore and offshore, uh, in a very quick time. Uh, among other things, we've got to put the grid offshore in an anticipatory uh, investment mode so that we actually get out of this system where uh, each offshore wind farm is responsible for developing a, uh, a landing cable uh, only for its own purposes and for nobody else. And we've got to have one which actually collectively manages the, north, the, 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 the offshore wind product and lands it collectively at the same time. That's, that's a big... Uh, work of, uh, of installation and among other things uh, we think that the system that uh, has informed our grid uh, management previously which is basically um, the, the, the transmission companies set out what they want to do um, over a period off gen pause over it for a number of years uh, rejects some of it 
uh, and then after another long period of time, there is a, a, a sort of a, an arrangement fashioned. We've actually got to have an understanding holistically of what we need for the grid, and then a, uh, a, an overall procurement of what we need. We cannot do this bit by bit, place by place, grid by grid, uh, extension of the future. It has to be, uh, to coin a phrase, of everything everywhere all at once. It has to be done on a parallel basis and not a sequential basis. And that's among other things where Great British Energy uh, comes in. I mean, it's not only a question of Great British Energy, uh, the, the company that we uh, want to set up to uh, if, effectively supercharge the, the question of investment who is going to invest where? Can we get these things away? Can we de-risk those investments? Can we get the cost of capital down in those investments? Um, is there a case, or there should be a case, for Great British Energy having a stake in the number of those uh, new investments going forward, uh, which will unlock that amount of money coming in uh, with risk assurance and, and various other things coming through Great British Energy, but also, as far as grid is concerned, uh, if you are doing a very substantial upfront procurement, to have a substantial hand of Great British Energy in that uh, procurement. So again, uh, we are crowding in uh, investments in a way that has not been seen before into uh, grid up upgrading, and we're doing that with the speed that it needs. So uh, I would leave I would leave us with two words. I think uh, here. Um, one is we've got to plan this and that's what we've had an absence of over the last uh, 13 years. Uh, and secondly, uh, we should not underestimate the speed at which we've got to do it and how every part of it articulates against every other part. So we've actually, we do have to do everything all at once and we've got to have the, the national capacity uh, not exactly uh, on an IRA Act basis, but um, something similar in terms of getting the, the, the ability for us to invest across the board, backed up by government, new concept of actually government actually being a, a positive entrepreneur in uh, those investment arrangements, uh, just to get that speed uh, sorted out uh, as quickly as we can. Uh, we are uh, going to be doing a lot in the first 100 days of a new Labour government to facilitate that going round, but we appreciate that is going to be a, uh, I mean, Ed has dis described it as an energy sprint, but it's a sort of an energy sprint where we've got to sprint round a marathon course, um, and that's what we're aiming to do. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> Keith, that's actually a very convenient segue to come over to you. Um, Alan talked about government being a positive entrepreneur in this space. From your perspective, what would you most like to see? What do you most need from a future Labour government to achieve this vision? Sure. Okay, so look, thank you. Um, and thank you for the, the invitation to the session. Um, I think just to yeah, take a quick step back, I, we've done a lot in the UK. And we've been quite good. And we've delivered a lot. Um, and in many ways, we've been the leader in driving to net zero. We've been the leader in offshore wind. Um, and that's important. Um, and it's important to recognize that. Um, and it's been successful to, to some extent uh, that other people are following us and copying us. Um, but that provides challenges as well. 
Um, and that's where you get challenges like what's going on in America with the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, but you know, it's important that countries like the UK uh, try to remain in the leadership position um, because it's important we show uh, other countries around the world what you can do, how you can do it, how you can make a success of it, uh, and what you can deliver. Okay. Right. Having said all of that, nice stuff. Uh, there are challenges. Um, it's taken us. Uh, it's taken us as a company to get. Taken us 25 years to get to where we are today. Um, so we are now repowering our first onshore wind farms, which have reached 25 years old. Um, we only have seven years left to get to 2030, and we only really have about 25 years left to get to 2050. Um, so we need to go five, six, seven times faster than we've been going to date. And that's the biggest challenge is speed. We're just not going fast enough. <coughs> Delivering lots of good stuff, we're bringing down the cost of energy, we're decarbonizing the system, but we're just not doing it fast enough. Uh, so where are the challenges in terms of speed and what is it we would look for a government to do? Um, challenges, two biggest challenges in terms of speed. Uh, it's quite simple, it's planning and grid. Okay. And most of the challenge around grid is also planning. Okay. Um, there is, uh, it's interesting, um, if you go back 12 months, uh, we couldn't get anyone to talk to us about the grid. Nobody had any interest in it whatsoever at all. It was the sort of forgotten part of the transition, it was the forgotten part of the energy sector. But it's always been there as the most critical bit to the journey. Um, doing the wind farms is easy. Doing EV charging points is easy. Uh, installing heat pumps is easy. Building grid is not. Um, particularly when you're having to redesign the entire system, reconfigure what's there, as well as expand it, invest in it, and grow it, as well as managing a queue system about people who want to connect it. It's phenomenally complicated. It's not a lack of willingness of companies to invest in the grid. Um, it's been about the process we use to deliver that investment, and it's about the planning system, uh, an awful lot of it. Um, I think it's great now, <coughs> yep, in Manchester last week, in Liverpool this week, uh, I think in Manchester last week, I counted at least eight fringe meetings, all focused on grid uh, in the future. And I think, I suspect, if I counted them through the, the fringe brochure for the Labour conference, it'll be about the same. It's a huge, huge focus, which, as I say, is a very positive. Um, what, are the, what are the issues and what do we want government to do? So the, the issues are twofold. One, one's around the investment and building out the future, and Alan talked about the plan. The positive on planning is that between the system operator, the grid companies, um, and uh, the regulator, We've done a holistic network design, the first part of it. We're about to do the second part of that holistic network design. And that's laid out for us. We've now identified approximately 30 of the most strategically important grid lines for the future of the UK. So we now know exactly where they are. We know exactly where they need to go. Uh, we know how much they're going to cost to build. Um, we just need to go on and build them. And then you get to the second part of the challenge. How in God's name do you get them through the planning system? 
Okay. Uh, the last time my company <coughs> built a transmission line uh, in Scotland, which is the last 400 kV transmission line in Scotland, which wasn't a new line, it was actually replacing an existing 132 kV line. It took from design to build 15 years because it got stuck in the planning system for 10 years. The longest ever planning inquiry in the history of Scotland. Okay? We cannot keep repeating that. But it's the most difficult political challenge for any government, whether you're an existing government or looking to be a future government. How do you change that system? How do you radically change the way we get stuck through the planning system? <coughs> and that's where you get into conversations around spatial planning, you get into conversations around having a national conversation. Because I know where all of those lines have to go. The government knows where they have to go. The regulator knows where they have to go. And I suspect out with those groups, no one else knows. We need to go and tell people what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what's in it for them. Because unless we tackle the what's in it for the public, we will never bring the public with us and we will never resolve the planning issue. We'll get into constant fights and constant political issues. So we need to radically change the way we go about doing this and the way we go about explaining it to people. Simple example. Right now, if you go through the planning system, if you're building a grid line and say the grid line's 100 miles long, you will have to go to every town, community and village along the line and hold a planning meeting. And I will tell you now, the first two questions in every one of those meetings. Question one, can you underground it? No. Question two, does it need to be near me? Yes. Okay. We need to get through those questions much, much faster. And the only way you'll do that is by explaining to people, here's what this country has to do, here's what this country has to deliver, here's the way we need to do it, and here's what's in it for you. And that's one of the important bits about the conversation just now. I think it's great to see the Labour Party talking about it, uh, and it comes through the Windsor report as well, is about how do we engage all of those communities in this process, and how do we get them bought into the process, and whether it's community funds, whether it's discounted energy prices, I don't mind which it is, but we need to look at how we get people bought in and explain what other benefit comes from these grid lines. If you look at areas where there's been massive investment in the grid system, um, the, the industrial development it helps to bring, the business development it brings, the economic development it brings is incredibly positive. And in almost every grid line we've ever built as a company, after two years of it being there, people have stopped talking about it. They don't care. It's just part of the local environment. But what they do care and they do recognize is all the other economic development that's come with it. And that's what we need to go out and explain to people. This country cannot have an industrial future. It cannot have a green energy future. It cannot have economic growth. It cannot create jobs. And it cannot have a better economy unless we build this grid. And that's the message we need to take out to people. And that's what I'm looking for from a government. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Jill, coming to you finally. Everyone so far has talked about the need for speed in this area. If 
the Labour Party did win the next election, how could they hit the ground running and make progress in government on this agenda? Okay, thanks very much, Gemma. Uh, I'm on a panel uh, with a bunch of energy specialists, so I thought I would change the conversation slightly about uh, going into government. Um, in one way, Rishi Sunak, I think, has done the Labour team quite a big favour by his machinery of government changes in February. That meant we have a dedicated energy and net zero department. You may want to change the name from energy security and net zero, change the email address, but basically you won't waste the first year of government in sorting out those machinery of government changes which you might otherwise duck. But in other ways, he's made life harder, I think by his sort of slightly destabilizing statements a few weeks ago, though he may yet rescue it a bit if he actually does do something strategic on the grid. So one of the absolutely critical things I think that you know depends on the realism of delivering this plan is what happens in the next year to 16 months. The last date for a general election is I think January 28th, 2025. Uh, so it could be a bit of time yet and that's eating into time for this 2030 table. The next thing I think, and this is a big institute for government message, is keep the shadow team intact. It's a message to Keir Starmer. It helps enormously in speeding transitions in government if the people who are talking to the civil service now are the people who then come into government rather than people who come in with a slightly different take, have to get up the learning curve quickly. We know, you know elections can change the choices available, but stability really, really helps. The next thing is to use those access talks with the civil service really well to be clear about what you want to be ready for day one. What do you expect to see? And I think the absolutely critical thing is you need a take of realism and where we are now and what can be done rapidly to unblock things. And one of the things I think you need to be thinking about is anything that requires legislation takes time. The getting the legislation through does not mean things instantly happen. Uh, you have to be thinking about, you know, for example, GB Energy. You might legislate for GB Energy. From second reading, you can start recruiting a shadow board and things like that. You can start sort of spending a bit of money in anticipation. But it takes time to recruit people. It takes time to get things ready. So if you're penciling in that anything that's GB Energy dependent is really not going to get going till 2027. What do you start doing in anticipation of that? Where can you do things without GB Energy? Where can you, for example, use things like the UK Infrastructure Bank or whatever, things that are already there to get going? Uh, and I think be, you know, be very clear on priorities. Um, and I think, you know, emerging from this, it's absolutely clear that grid is the absolute priority. Uh, slightly resist the temptation to do everything just because you can and you're now there. Uh, so I think a bit of focus on priorities, prioritization around the legislation, make clear you're doing that. And think what decisions you can do to take options off the table that might be a distraction. The government at the moment, I think, has penciled in a decision on hydrogen for 2026. Do you, can you bring that decision forward sensibly? Um, some things are waiting to see. The Climate Change Committee talks about low regrets investment that you know, isn't dependent on that decision, but where are there those sorts of things that you can actually say, we can bring clarity where there is murk now. So those sort of non-legislative actions early on, I think are really, really, really helpful. 
The final thing I would say is the Labour mission is about being a clean energy superpower. But being a clean energy superpower is only part of the net zero transition. And I think one of the things that isn't so clear is what is Labour going to do to deliver all the other parts, and in particular the demand side. We know from Rishi Sunak's statement that the Conservatives are very reluctant to go near the demand side. But as Emma said, there are a lot of dependencies there. Speed of take up of EVs, very grid dependent heat pump rollout, but also where are you going to go on energy efficiency, where are you going to go on other things? Because obviously decarbonizing the grid is easier if it's a smaller grid and demand is lower. Thank you very much, Keith. Thanks, Jill. Um, so I will soon come to the audience questions. There are lots of you and hopefully there'll be lots of um, questions from you. but. I just wanted to pick up on this question of planning because certainly the news reports this morning suggest that Rachel Reeves is expected to say something in this area. I mean, this is a slightly unfair question since I'm asking you to kind of speculate on the basis of news reports. But um, Emma, from what you've seen, does it sound like that's the sort of thing you're looking for or are there other issues in this area? I think my whole job is speculating on news reports, so <laughs> that's fine. Um, what do I think? I, I think there's a difference. So I think it's really, really good to have a shadow chancellor talking about planning and grid and just to do the kind of politically neutral fair thing. I think it's also good that the overall speech from the prime minister on, um, the, on net zero was very bad for our investors and the market did not respond to it well. But the one thing that was good in it was spatial planning for grid. And as Keith said, in the energy sector, we've been trying to get you all hyped about grid for a solid 10 years. So welcome. Um, you now have to go out and tell everyone out there. But it's so important. I think the, the kind of the fact that you've got Treasury leading the charge on this as well as the energy team is really healthy. So, I said, so that's all good. Where I have concerns, I think the rubber does hit the road on the politics. And so just to, and, and every decision now on the transition is on a line, if I can see Alex, this, isn't, this is not in my talking points, congratulations. Brace yourself. Um, every, there is no decision now in energy which doesn't have some kind of trade-off. And a lot of those trade-offs are political. So for example, on planning, one option available to the government is the Secretary of State just calls in everything because we decide it's a national priority, overrules constituency MPs and says, no, it's important your communities have this. That is an option. It's like the far end of the scale. I'm not recommending it. I'm just outlining the scale, like what you could do. At the other end of the system, we have people who say things like, well, maybe we just don't build big kit and big transmission and we do kind of community energy models and, and more distributed. And, or it's entirely done with community benefit and we pay people to have the infrastructure, so kind of more community-led approaches. But both those answers will solve your problem. Neither of them are perfect. And the reality of the UK system is we need to build something like, it's a 50-50 system. We need to do lots of distributed, community-led, small-scale, micro-generation, small community energy projects, stuff on roofs. We need to do that. Flexibility stuff is a guy at the energy system catapult. This is whole, his whole world. We need to do that in the UK, but 50% of our generation mix, if not more, is going to come from offshore wind and nuclear, and that means big kit. There's lots of big kit across the country, and it's concentrated as well in particular regions. And so it's quite likely that government will have to wrestle at some point with the politics of this, regardless of the plans, and we'll have to do a mix of squaring off to backbenchers and also getting in place the right benefits. The reason you can't do it all with benefits is it's, it's unfair on the rest of the population. So 
to, to give you a line I heard, if most of the infrastructure is going to be in Suffolk and through wealthier villages, is it fair to pay off wealthier villages to host the infrastructure that poor people benefit from because it's, it reduces their bills across the country? There is no easy choice on this stuff. So I really like that it's being made, commitments are being made publicly. I really like that it is across government. I think that's right strategically. It will need detailed solutions, but then, wow, we're going to have to do some politics. And just lastly on Keith's point, the last time we did an, um, an energy transition of this scale in the 70s, the energy industry, which was smaller then, um, got together and ran a big national campaign. And one of those adverts, it featured pylons, and it showed pictures of like a five-year-old girl with a pylon, and it said, if you don't want a pylon in your community, can you explain to her why she won't have cheap electricity in the future? There was another one which said, there was a pile, and it was like, if you don't want infrastructure in your community, can you explain to the people of Wales why they can't have access to clean electricity or just electricity then? And I think there is something about, we need to communicate the scale of this moment and the importance of it. And while I don't think communication will solve everything, I do think we do need to start that. So as industry, I've come away from conferences and saying, in preparation for when the rubber hits the road on planning, we will do what we can as industry to standardize alongside government and try and at least make the comms easier and work with the public. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was a, a long way of saying, it's gonna be really hard, but we do need to do it. And I suppose the net benefit is lower bills, energy security. We cannot run the economy without this stuff. We need you all to help us champion it and we will do what we can to make sure it's delivered in the fairest way possible. Alan, this is clearly an issue that successive governments have really struggled with. How are you thinking about how you can go about communicating with the public, getting people on board, overcoming some of these planning barriers if you were to be in government? Yeah, I was um, I was just going to say, apropos grid, um, I have been banging on about grid for years. <laughs> You're um, in the gang now, Alan. And it's, uh, yeah, and it's... it's uh, I mean, w what has continue to really disappoint me. I mean, for, for a long time, no one noticed that there was a grid problem. Um, and then now that we've noticed, there's some very rough and quick scrabbling to try and uh, sort of rectify some of the worst problems that had arisen from uh, neglect of the grid. And uh, those are not just neglect negative problems, they are positive decisions that have been taken in the past by government um, to actually put the grid in a bad place. And I've mentioned one about offshore uh, wind, but there are a number of others where we've institutionalized bad ways of doing things um, about grid development. Now, one of, one of the important things, um, I think, is actually we've valued the cost benefits of grid in entirely the wrong way over the period. And one of the values that we've got to put in uh, to the whole planning process is the value of time. That is, it's not necessarily the case that you put in the cheapest way of doing it just because that's how the cost benefit works out. If by not doing it, then you give yourself a whole lot more cost in the future, which you should value into the planning process in the first instance. Yeah. So that's uh, one important point. Second. Uh, important point is, uh, yes, uh, Keith mentioned 
uh, that um, there are now holistic network designs coming through. Um, part two of a holistic ESO network process coming up shortly. That is still entirely predicated on supply side uh, arrangements. And we just haven't factored in demand side stuff uh, into the grid process. So the you know, question for the new uh, government uh, will be how much can you save off the system uh, over the next period um, uh, so that um, the, the, the cost that you're going to have to put in, as far as grid is concerned, uh, are substantially ameliorated. And uh, I mean, one example, I mean, this is, this is an example rather more on heat than on, um, than on power. But I mean, you know, we are proposing uh, home upgrade of 19 million homes uh, over a 10-year period uh, to make them energy efficient for net zero. The consequence of that would be that we'd actually have about 30% less gas in the system. So it's got a very direct consequence on demand side for what you need to do about gas supply and, uh, and so on. And there are a number of other things such as that which can actually um, make sure that what you are doing in terms of, of grid expansion is the most accurate that you can possibly get. Uh, that, I mean, uh, and the final uh, point uh, is one of the complete neglects that we've had, I have to say, is that we have failed to integrate offshore and onshore as far as grid uh, capacity and arrangements are concerned. And I was, I was sort of, uh, I wouldn't say amused, but um, the, the debate that Keith mentioned that's been going on about a particular grid extension, Green Anglia um, grid, uh, grid uh, pr proposal going through quite a lot of East Anglia and landing near uh, Tilbury, I think. A number of the opponents of that have said, oh, why can't we offshore the whole thing? Um, well, we could have done if we had an offshore grid capable of taking it in the first place. Um, but the complete neglect of doing the grid in that particular way meant that that was not at the time that was extension was proposed was a serious alternative option. Now, that could be a serious alternative option if you actually had a grid carrying capacity offshore that was able to take those changes. And uh, I mean, for example, one of the one of the things that is being proposed in the holistic network design is a series of boots, so-called bootstraps, which can actually very much ease the passage of electricity production from the north to where it is being substantially used in the south. And that will, among other things, uh, tremendously uh, ameliorate the situation where we're, we're shutting down a lot of offshore wind, for example, uh, because we can't get the power into the system. Uh, and we're then paying people not to produce electricity rather than producing uh, electricity and, and putting it into the system. And a number of other things we've got to do about storage and, and so on uh, to make that sort of thing more efficient. But if you build three offshore bootstraps, um, no one's going to get upset about that. Uh, and you have enormously uh, enhanced the ability of your energy system to produce electricity in a uh, in a, an, an expedient and, 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 and timely way that can actually save you quite a lot of additional investment in order to get that electricity back into the system at a later date. So those are the sort of things that we really need to concentrate on 
as far as grid development is concerned, to make sure that it is put into a holistic uh, network arrangement uh, and can uh, make sure that the energy we are producing not only is landed, but actually goes around the system and is used effectively. I'm, I feel bad. I'm aware that I did this at the last party conference as well, so congratulations. You've, I've made the same mistake twice. Alan and I have given quite like big answers on planning, and they're like up here, and everyone's like, why are you talking about network design? I thought, given that the challenge here is that you've got seven years, what things can you do fast? It's worth saying there are some things on planning that are totally crackers that we could solve fairly immediately. So, for example, if you try and install a heat pump, you're required to install it a metre away from your property in many cases. That's based on very old assumptions about how noisy heat pumps are. Just get rid of that one. There is an effective ban on onshore wind uh, after the 2015 green crap moment. We've had a written ministerial statement that goes some way to ameliorating that, but we could go the whole way and just bring back onshore wind to be equivalent to other forms of infrastructure and planning. We can decide what the Secretary of State states, plural, because it would have to be the Energy Secretary and um, DLEC Secretary, which things they do call in and, and which they don't. And by that, I mean, where in the system does like national priority stop? Is it at the wind farm or is it at the substation or is it at the cable? And just being clear about, we will call everything in under this point and because we need to build it, bootstraps, for example. That would be helpful. And then lastly, we haven't talked about it, but there's going to be a thing called the independent system operator. And that is the bit of national grid spun out from the control room and and they will do a lot of the strategic planning function in the system so being clear with them what their job is and designing where things go is really important and they can start that work because they are being set up through the energy bills so they will be in existence hopefully when the labor government comes in that's really important i mentioned gas transition at the beginning genuinely it's one of my big concerns because as with other forms of infrastructure in the sixth carbon budget, we think we need one unabated power plant. That's for emergencies, black start, you know, 14 days with no wind and a really cold winter, for example. So we'll need a, a one, two power plants in the system to do that kind of function. We'll also need power plants in the system to help balance the grid. So where they are really matters. And for that, the industry will need a clear view of which ones we want to have with hydrogen, which ones we want to have with carbon capture. Are they near industrial clusters? Are they near demand centers? How do we do this? And so that is something we already know we have to do and you could give to the independent system operator to start thinking about. So there are some things we can, we can get going on. I realize that most of this session has been like, oh God, it's massive. It's really big stuff and it's really complicated and it's gonna take us ages. There are some like quick and dirty things we can get going on right now. Sorry, there you go. Can I just throw in something else that I think is quite big and an issue that you need to get around. A lot of the pitch on the green energy transition is that it's going to create lots of jobs. And we're talking about lots and lots of building uh, in a very compressed time scale. When the government tried to build the Olympic Stadium, UK Borders Agency had a special team set up to give out visas to the people who needed to come in to build the Olympic Stadium. Olympic Stadium was built by foreigners on special visas. I think there's a real risk that construction becomes a really major bottleneck here. And probably in some other room, in some other conference hall, Yvette Cooper is probably giving out reassurances about labor and migration. So I think we really need to be sure that in order to capture the benefits for people here, we actually have a proper sort of thought through 
skills and supply chain strategy to complement this because you know at the moment you don't have to worry about it so much because the planning system is getting in the way of building stuff but when you flick that switch you know heroic minister and well done when you flick that switch you need to move into that and i think that's a really big thing to be thinking about now about where are those people how are you going to flex the visa regime to bring in some of those initial skills. You can't get sort of skilled people turned on, but how actually are you going to create jobs in the places where you want to do that? Yep. Brilliant, uh, thank you. So going to be very, even, even ruder than Emma in terms of interjecting again. Um, <laughs> I, I, just, I, I just wanted to very quickly underline what Jill has been saying about just how long it takes to get the machinery of government round to doing these things. And uh, you know, one thing I can tell you is one way not to do it is put an energy bill before the House of Commons and take a year and a half to actually take it through whilst adding bits to it as you go along and then taking it off the, off the table for four months while you think about it and then bringing it back again. Uh, we've just got to have speed in legislation and government structure at the same rate as we're talking about in terms of um, uh, in, in, in terms of the, the investment that we're going to need in the planning arrangements and hence the Energy Independence Bill which I think is being talked about this afternoon uh, and it will not take a year and a half to get it through Parliament. Thank you. Um, so I do want to come to you all now for questions so please um, go the lady there and then the lady there and then take the gentleman right at the back had his hand up. Thanks very much indeed for a fascinating discussion. Um, I'm Laura Fattar from Global Action Plan. I thought one of the key community benefits that we really need to highlight in this is improved public health. Moving away from fossil fuels, decarbonizing the energy sector is gonna have massive impacts on clean air um, and the environment and the air that we breathe are of course really important building blocks for health. We're calling uh, for a UK HSA-led public health awareness campaign about air pollution, and we think it will really help to sort of shift the dial in public opinion and also really show that there is a reason for doing these things that's more than just um, a kind of our energy. It's actually very much easier for people to relate to their own personal health. So my question is, um, would panelists support that sort of public health-led campaign? Thanks very much. Uh, Izzy Walgar, Centre for Net Zero, part of the Octopus Energy Group. Um, I think when we think about 2030, whole systems thinking is absolutely critical. And I wanted to pick up on Jill's point around the demand side. Obviously in the UK, we saw the demand flexibility service over winter involve over 1 million households shifting around the times at which they use energy to support the grid. Now, if we're gonna get to net zero at low cost, we know that we need to scale that massively, you know, from one million households to several million. And so my question is, what is the Labour uh, government strategy for scaling demand side flexibility? Thanks. Thanks. Uh, Chris Book from the Nuclear AMRC. First of all, big thanks to Jill for mentioning skills and supply chain. It's really important that we invest now in the industrial foundations that are going to be needed to underpin all of this and deliver the benefits. Um, my question really is about, um, refers to the point about the need to get move, things moving quickly and to what extent Great British Nuclear can be used as a sort of precursor vehicle to GB Energy 
and get things going, building on what's already there and delivering that consistency and confidence and continuity that industry needs. Fantastic. So we've got three questions there. One about making the public health case for the shift to green energy. Um, one from Izzy from Octopus about what label we do on the demand side. And thirdly from Chris about the role potentially of nuclear, GB nuclear um, as a precursor to GB energy. Alan, I'll start with you. Now I'll come to Emma. Right. Um, demand side. Demand, demand side. Um, number one, uh, we've actually got to be um, as good as we can get in terms of load shifting and demand anticipation and management in the system, uh, which can be uh, particularly predicated and it's going to be a very important part of the grid development process that we've actually got on the grid the amount of storage that we're going to need and load shifting ability to actually do that in a low carbon system. Now, tr traditionally, obviously, that's been um, about uh, bringing on uh, peaking power plant, say, into the system. Um, and obviously, what we uh, will have to do is put a gas plant into a strategic reserve uh, sort of arrangement on the system so that it, it can actually uh, be the uh, demand side balancer in the system as a whole without actually producing a great deal of, of, of um, high carbon power uh, in the process. That's number one. Uh, number two, there are various things. This is, not, this is not about batteries. This is about long duration storage, um, which would be hydrogen, um, uh, compressed air or indeed pumped hydro. Uh, so that is an integral part of the toolkit of the new, uh, new arranged grid. Thirdly, I would say that uh, some of this actually uh, boils down to changing how the retail market works uh, and developing a retail market which is based on an energy as service proposition rather than uh, and energy is how can you sell as much energy to the customer as you possibly can and probably go bust in the process and then have to be rescued by a number of other companies uh, socializing out the cost to individuals. So development of a, a retail market which actually is based on service contracts uh, whereby the, the retailer is part and parcel of that uh, demand side uh, activity. So bringing customers into um, demand side uh, changes as far as their energy behavior is concerned. I mean, you know, Octopus and uh, others have actually started to do that, that process, but that ought to be institutionalized in how the retail market works. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, investing in things in houses which actually reduce demand for energy as part of the energy service contract. That may be, um, you know, more efficient ways of doing things around the home, or it may be in terms of um, self-generation in properties, but folded into the contract. Uh, as far as um, Great British Nuclear is concerned, it's certainly our intention that Great British Nuclear is going to be folded into Great British Energy as it comes forward. And the, the, the work that Great British Nuclear is all, all already uh, beginning to do is absolutely in line with the sort of thing that we want to see happening as far as Great British Energy uh, is concerned. So um, uh, I'm afraid Great British Nuclear will not have a long life, therefore, in its own right, but it will, it will 
have a, um, you know, a, a very substantial role to play within Great British Energy as it goes forward. Thank you, Alan. Um, Emma, this may be the last opportunity for comment, so if you want to yes. pick up on those questions. I can see that, because people else. are leaving, that's what you want at the end of a fringe. Um, the health thing, yes, there are already actually existing pilots in the energy sector that try to look at health outcomes from doing this. I'm on the board of advisory board of one where we're looking at boiler replacements in vulnerable homes and, and health effects. I know, surprising. But co-benefits is, is a very familiar thing to the energy sector, partly because a lot of energy efficiency programs today have been targeting vulnerable households, fuel poverty, our customers that have health conditions. And so the sector's pretty used to working with people with overlapping health and energy needs. Um, more broadly, I think it's very smart to do something on air quality. If you think about what happened with EVLOS, I'm amazed at how many times people ask me about it as a climate policy when it's an air quality air policy. And just lastly, as a mum of two wheezy children, yes, please, if you could sort that out. So I think there's a very powerful air quality message that works for people. Interestingly, we, you know, we often fail to communicate co-benefits both as a sector, you know, replacing boilers with heat pumps, for example, will improve indoor air quality. I don't think many people understand that NOx emissions are quite bad for respiratory illnesses, for example. <laughs> also bad at communicating it on a whole economy level. And I have tried to pitch to Rachel the idea that if she's going to be the green chancellor and some of the mechanisms for measuring success and investment need to change in Treasury because we don't really properly evaluate the benefit of uh, investing in grid. We're sitting in one of you know, the great Victorian metropolises. Do you think anyone built this stuff thinking about what it would look like in 20 years' time through the Green Book process? No, and it's still here. <laughs> you know, a couple of hundred years later. And I think just getting tools and models that help us really understand the economic case for investment is important. And we don't, you know, cost things like health savings to the economy and a lot of climate policy. Um, so that's that. Um, send us your stuff. We'll always look at it. Energy UK speaks for the sector, but if we can do stuff with organisations, we do. Um, and certainly my Twitter has a life of its own. So there we go. Um, on whole systems thinking, you know what we think, and I, I said we're going to convert this whole room to demand side flexibility. The important statistic about the DSR trial last year, the flexibility response trial, is we saved a power station's worth of energy every time. Everyone was really skeptical about how much of it we would do, but it was a predictable load of, of, of around 2.5 gigawatts. That is a gas fire power station. Get flexibility right, we have to build less stuff, and given how much stuff we have to build, that's a winner. I took this job because I thought energy retailers were the surprising. I thought energy retailers were probably the silver bullet to trying to get consumers to come with us on heat, on smart meters, on EV charging, on technologies on the demand side. It's so, so important and we never talk about it. So I'm all in on that. And I have tried to make that pitch to Ed when we're thinking about what the UK is really good at. It's floating offshore wind, it's cables, it's offshore wind, it's SMRs, it's helicopters, weirdly, it's lawyers, we're very good at lawyering of all kinds, but it's also artificial intelligence, innovation, retail markets, and excellent early stage R&D. I've made that case, I'm waiting for it to land. Alan, help me out. Um, and then lastly on skills, we didn't talk about it much, but skills, commodities, supply chain are the biggest geopolitical crunch in all of this. It's not just about can we get the labor in to do the next 10 years? It is every single country wants to build this infrastructure at the scale we're describing now. Can we get people to come here in the first place? That's about an investment climate where industry will move their ships, their workers here. And then it's also about a long-term certainty. So we've got an order book so that we can procure, so we can train people and know we're going to be doing this for 20 years, not just five. And I think it is 
it is critical we get that right because that's where a lot of the constraints are in the system now. It's about the physical stuff and people to build the kit. And so we didn't talk about it enough, but once we're done doing grid, you're absolutely right. We've also got a number of other challenges we need to solve. Um, and just lastly, if it's final comments, it's nice to come to a Labour Party conference and talk about how government and industry needs to do this together. The scale of it is so big. As I said on planning, there are no completely right answers either way. We're going to have to do it in partnership, and we're going to have to figure out a lot of stuff at, at speed as we go if Labour do win the next election. I think industry is very up for that challenge, and I suppose we're all hoping that there's a general election that isn't a year away. But if there is, I think there's a lot of work to be done with the current government and with Labour between now and then to make sure we're in the best possible place for 2030, 2035 or beyond. Energy underpins the economy. We are not going to wait for any politician. We're going to keep trying to push this through. But ultimately, on stuff like planning and grid, we do need politicians to come with us. Thanks. Thank you, Emma. Jill, did you have any final contribution to that? I was just going to pick up on the point about health. When I was in DEFRA, when it still did climate change, um, we tried to convince the uh, Department of Health to be interested in things like fuel poverty and air quality. And the Department of Health is the department for the NHS. It sort of really doesn't sort of join up in that way. So I think one of the really interesting challenges about Labour's planned approach to government is where this new sort of mission-driven thing stops people sitting in departmental silos and thinking about what am I doing in my department and trying to just look at other departments' policies as where do I stop that getting in the way of my bit in my department and actually move from what I call lowest common denominator government into highest common factor government where you come together and say actually how do we maximize the synergies from our policies and do that. I don't think UKHSA is the right body, but that's a different issue. I think someone else actually now in Department of Health, because I don't think they do public health like that. But I think there's a really interesting question about you know how far is this a whole of government effort and how far is it just sitting in whatever Desnes is renamed post-election? Thanks very much, Jill. Um, and that does bring us to the end of our time. Thank you all very much for joining us. Um, big thank you to Energy UK for partnering with us on this event and to Emma for her excellent contribution to the panel. Thank you also to Alan for joining us, Keith who has left, and to Jill. Um, please do join us for other IFG events um, at Party Conference. Uh, you can find us in the programme. I won't run through it now. Um, but thank you very much. It's been a fantastic discussion.